Hello and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Kathleen Dillon. And I'm Lauren Marinero. Today on our show, we're thrilled to be speaking with NYU alumni Francine Menz on her life journey pivoting from medicine to starting her own consulting business, Evolving Conversations. Beyond the rich discussion of her career, Francine provides real tips and tricks to help introverts and everyone, frankly, to have better, deeper conversations and grow stronger relationships something we could all use a little more of right now. Absolutely. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm excited to share it with all of our listeners. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Francine, welcome to Stern Chats. We're so excited to have you here. Hi, Kathleen. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and talk to you guys and talk to your community. Well, we wanted to kick off the conversation talking about your childhood. Um, did you think as a child, was there any kind of early signs that you would eventually go into medicine, psychology? What were you like as a child? Yeah. Um, okay. So I grew up in Oklahoma. Um I'm, I have a much older brother. Um, so I kind of grew up like as an only child. Uh, my brother's 16 years older than me. Um, my parents are from Ghana, so I'm first generation. And uh, growing up in Oklahoma in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, was pretty interesting if you're uh, the child of immigrants. Um, I was really shy. Uh, you know, I spent most of my childhood you know, in my room playing with my Michael Jackson Barbie and my other Barbies and like just playing house or, you know, reading, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, just really getting lost in like fantasy world where the Babysitter's Club was also a favorite of mine. Um, you know, so so I remember being very happy, you know, as like a introvert, you know, just getting lost and daydreaming and you know, spending all that time reading, but I also had times where I felt very, you know, lonely. Like I only saw my friends really during the academic year over the summer, you know, some summers I wouldn't really see people. I wouldn't really have to sleepovers and things like that. I remember feeling like, wow, you know, people just really don't get who I am. And like, that really sucks. And like, when I grow up, I want to change that, you know? Um, so one of the other things, because my family's from Ghana, you know, we used to take our family trips, um, certainly out of the state and then definitely out of the country. We would go to either New York or London or Ghana. And I just had this memory of, um, you know, I must have been five or six. And I have this very vivid memory of being low to the ground, like in a stroller. And my, um, my cousin was pushing me along Prospect Park. Uh, and it was snowing and like snow was just hitting the pavement and the trees and the cars were going by and the buildings were so tall and like I just fell in love with it and it's just a memory that stuck with me and I think that's the first time I fell in love with New York City. Um, so fast forward to age 10 I decided that I was going to leave Oklahoma and come to New York City for college. <laughs> um, I just felt like I was leaving my parents behind. That was the plan. And I had a different school in mind that was not NYU that later got changed. Um, but yeah, I just fell in love with New York City from, you know, that time on. And I fell in love with travel. Um, I just really loved being in big cities. And I think all of that kind of brought me to who I am now as, um, 
you know, a traveler and, uh, you know, a person who loves New York and an entrepreneur. Um, as far as how I got into medicine, um, also around the same time as I was taking that trip, uh, my mom, who's a registered nurse, um, she went to nursing school in London, but she got her bachelor's degree at several years after she'd been practicing as a nurse. And so I used to go to college class with her when I guess she maybe couldn't find a babysitter. So one time she took me to uh, an anatomy class and she and her class were dissecting cats. So I remember walking into the room and everyone had these trays of cats open. And I mean, I guess this is something that maybe wouldn't happen now, but maybe in the eighties in Oklahoma is okay. But um, I just remember like we sat at her desk and she was dissecting this cat and I was sitting next to her and I just thought it was the most fascinating thing like the parts and the stringy parts and the colors and that really sour smell that somehow didn't bother me but like that really that formaldehyde smell gets like in your nose it's kind of gross but at the time I was I was just fascinated and I think that love of anatomy what I came to later realize is anatomy really pushed me into uh, being a radiologist and so I'm a neuroradiologist so um you know, I look at scans of the entire body, but I specialize in reading brain MRIs and CT scans. And, you know, really it's that love of anatomy that uh, eventually drove me to medical school. I just want to say, I <laughs> I totally identify uh, just with everything you mentioned. I think uh, I'd love to hear if Kathleen's not in her head on this one too, but I, um, so many people I know have that very visceral first memory of New York you know, um, whether it's, you know, the middle of winter time or in the fall, but the big buildings and kind of just this energy that uh, vibrates the entire place. So I think you're speaking to the right audience uh, <laughs> when you when you speak to that love. Um, and then also for me personally, I um, was a biochem undergrad. So I also, I still distinctly remember um, dissecting cats in high school and thinking this is cool. And that's not a common... <laughs> Not no, <laughs> no, no. Um, but I, I appreciate your love for that as well, <laughs> for better or worse. So, I mean, we kind of have a, a better sense of you know what brought you to to New York City. Um, mm -hmm. How was how was your experience at NYU undergrad? And uh, mm -hmm. you mentioned uh, you know wasn't necessarily your first choice, but you ultimately ended up there. I'm just curious to know if you if it if you fell in love with it in the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, it became my first choice once I got to high school um, and did my type A analysis of all the schools I wanted to get to. Um, and I ended up going to that other school and it just didn't feel like a good fit for me. So um, yeah, I mean, it was the best decision I ever made. Besides, you know, NYU having a great pre-med program and psychology program, like it just really being in the city and being on at a school where the campus is a campus, but not really a campus. Like the whole city's your campus. Um, and that's a perfect example. <laughs> um, you know, it just really, it really prepared me and encouraged me to open up and to find, you know, friends and find people who understood me. And so that was really the beginning of my shift away from shyness um, into being very social and still an introvert, but being very social and feeling more like I could really talk to people and I could find the people that I aligned with. So yeah, NYU is a great choice. 
I'm glad to hear you had such a great experience at NYU. I think it definitely has a tendency to maybe bring people out of their shells and just expose people to new experiences. And you mentioned this before, but beyond NYU, you ended up going to Cornell for medical school and then mm-hmm. became a radiologist. And mm-hmm. in gathering research and information for um, for this discussion with you, Lauren and I came across some statistics which estimated that 2% of physicians across the country right now are Black women. Why mm-hmm. is it that you think mm-hmm. there are so few um, Black female physicians? And mm-hmm. what can the medical community and medical schools do to improve those statistics in the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, yeah, it's 2% of physicians are Black women. And uh, in terms of population, Black people make up 13% of uh, the U.S. population. So I think the total of Black physicians is maybe just 5%. Um, so, you know, I think I think we, we definitely need more Black uh, female physicians. And that's really because there's something about being a patient and, you know, being in that situation where you're sick and you don't know what's happening and you don't have control. Um, it can be something small just to see somebody who looks like you, um, who's taking care of you. Uh, so certainly there's a clear need for it. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I chose Cornell is um, I, <clears throat> when I was at NYU as an undergrad, I worked for uh, a dermatologist. And so um, occasionally he would have a complicated biopsy and he uh, had privileges at Cornell. So sometimes I'd have to run a specimen um, to the dermatopathology lab at Cornell. So one of these days I did it. And I remember going over to York Avenue and I just looked at the steps and there were all these young black people, men and women who were just laughing and talking like right at the medical school steps. And I just saw them and they just looked so happy. And I was like, wow, <laughs> like that's, that's what I want. Like I, I, this is where I belong. Like I'm going to go there. Um, so yeah, so that's what ended up happening. Um, and so, you know, I I had made that decision that I was going to go there. But when I met with my pre-med advisor um, and NYU had, I don't know what it's like now, but they had just kind of a general situation where you spoke to different advisors in the pre-med department. And I remember one of them told me that, you know, I, I didn't really have a good chance of getting in uh, to Cornell. And I remember being confused about that because I had already taken the MCAT and I had a good score and I was an honor student and I felt like all of the, you know, um, metrics were there. Um, but it was just really discouraging. And I think one of the reasons why we don't have more black people in medicine is because you do get people telling you that you can't do it. And sometimes it's not even just as obvious as what was told to me, but there's just these subtle implications of like, well, you know, it's going to be really, really hard for you. You know, and it's like, yeah, okay, medical school is hard. <laughs> like, I get that. It's hard for everybody. Um, you know, and I, I think it's just, you know, people think that they're trying to cushion your fall, but they're actually just really discouraging you. So you have that. And then you have the other thing where it's like, you get to a certain place, you get to the med school, you get into the internship, and people feel like you're there because you're an underrepresented minority. And so you have to deal with that. And then that, you know, it just makes you feel bad because you know that you're working your butt off, you're studying, you're doing all the things. And like, you see the results of it that people make you feel like you don't deserve to be there. 
And then of course, you know, um, with med school or any grad school, like it's rigorous, it's a change from undergrad, you know, your career focused, like, yes, you may still have elements of dorm life, and you still have a little bit of that kind of freedom. But now you've, you've picked a career, you have to focus, you have to show up to your classes, you have to do well. And med school, you know, it's like, do well, or, you know, somebody's going to get sick, or you might kill someone, so it's just super stressful. So then you deal with imposter syndrome, you know, and that's something that a lot of, uh, people deal with, especially women, especially underrepresented minorities, you feel like you have to prove yourself, like you don't actually deserve to be there. So, you know, it just gets really hard. Um, you know, I think a lot of people just uh, kind of give up. And and I think also medicine doesn't have enough resources for everybody in terms of dealing with, um, you know, the psychological components of the job. Um, it's super stressful. And I think only now within the last few years, the medical community is really talking about um, physician and uh, other healthcare workers experiencing uh, depression and even physician suicides. Uh, you know, this, this was not a conversation, you know, when I was in, uh, in school and in training. Um, the culture of medicine is really, you know, you go out into the, you know, ER waiting room and you tell somebody that, you know, their child just passed away and you don't have time to process that because you have 20 other patients who are, you know, some of whom are in the process of being very ill or dying, you know, and you have to go take care of them now. There's not time for you to take that space to even, you know, deal with your own feelings about having to deliver that bad news to someone, let alone actually seeing that child, you know, pass away. So uh, I think for all those reasons, um, you know, that's why, you know, that's why you end up with only 2%. Um, black women are in medicine. Um, but, you know, there's definitely movements to, uh, to include or to increase diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, certainly Cornell had an initiative to make sure at least, you know, 10% or more of the class was um, black specifically. Um, and, you know, I think, I think people are trying, I think especially with uh, the events of this past summer, I think more corporations and institutions, including hospitals, are realizing that they do have to actively recruit um, underrepresented minorities into their spaces and to create spaces where people feel open to, um, you know, talk about their issues and, you know, talk about what it's like to walk into a room and be the only, <clears throat> you know, Black person or, uh, you know, person of color or only women, which still happens in, in medicine, um, and not feel like your voice is heard or that you, you know, people constantly interrupt you, you know, like, you know, the culture has to really change. And I think it's changing, but it just, it just takes time. It just takes time. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think there's a lot to draw from that and take away in terms of just, um, you know, being supportive of the folks around you and community that you're in and um, and also maybe being patient, I guess, in, in some sense of, of that word. I'm curious, you know, you, you've, you've left medicine, you've mm -hmm. started your own company and you mentioned going into medical school that, you know, that's when people get serious, it's when they pick their career. And mm -hmm. so to go in there and kind of like, you know, um, with that kind of focus and then make that big transition or leap out of medicine. I'm just would love to hear your story and kind of how you came um, to that yeah. decision that worked out fantastic. I mean, you started <laughs> your own company. Yeah. Okay. yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I think for a lot of uh, career pivots, the story is kind of long. Um, you know, when I got to Cornell, I was overjoyed, but I quickly realized that, you know, something felt a little bit off for me. And I think it just took the next decade plus for me to realize that, um, you know, there was more that I could do with my skill set and my talent than be a physician. Um, because what happens is, you know, you're in a brand new space, it's much more rigorous than undergrad. Um, and everyone is just kind of, you know, adjusting to that. And uh, so you just assume that things will be better after you acclimate. And for me, what happened is, you know, I acclimated, um, you know, I was doing well, studying along with all my classmates, and but I still wasn't really feeling content or fulfilled. And so when I spoke to people about it, um, they just said, well, you know, once you get to third year, you're actually interfacing with patients and you feel like a real physician and it's like, you know, it's going to be so much better. And, you know, that just never happened for me. I mean, I got there, you know, I, I certainly saw the value in, um, you know, treating patients and, you know, it's, it is really great when people are happy that you've helped them, you know, and, um, and feeling like you can make a difference when somebody's lying sick in a hospital, that is a really great feeling, but it still felt like something was off. And essentially that discontinued at each step for me through uh, graduating med school and then doing my internship where you're actually, you know, you get that MD behind your name and it's really great. Um, for me, uh, my first day as a physician, I was starting in the surgery part of my internship um, at a hospital in Coney Island. And my pager didn't work for some reason, one of those technical malfunctions. So um, they kept, so they had to overhead page me. Um, and it was a 24 hour shift my first day of being a doctor. So, you know, the first time I heard, you know, Dr. Francine Menz, I was like, yay. Oh my God. I'm so, I said it like, this is so awesome. <laughs> and by the fifth time I heard it, I was like, this is horrible. <laughs> and then, you know, at 3am, now it's like hour 16 or 17 of my call, I'm like, losing my mind, and the novelty is gone. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, it just, so it just always felt like, you know, it was so hard, and was so difficult. And there were moments that were gratifying, but most of it, I just felt like I was trying to stay afloat. And so finally, when I got, you know, I finished my internship, I did a uh, five, four year residency, another year of fellowship. And then I finally started practicing and everyone said, okay, you're going to be making like real money. Like, you know, all of your financial issues go away. It's going to be great. And that happened, but it still just didn't feel right. Like I, you know, my first job was like a nice outpatient radiology practice and I still came home feeling kind of empty. And so at that point, you know, I told myself, well, I just need a new, I just need a different job. So after two years, I switched practices and I did, um, <clears throat> I worked at a big radiology practice across the tri-state area and I was in a hospital, it was like a level two ER. So I was seeing lots of, you know, really interesting cases and I was really making an impact, you know, I was working directly with the neurosurgeons and um, you know, helping them plan their cases and working with the head and neck surgeons. And it was, it was really great. And it was really fulfilling in that sense. But I still found that there were some days where I was late to work because I just couldn't get out of bed. I just felt like, you know, this, 
you know, the Sunday dread that I think some people have, like, I just had that every day. (laughs) And, you know, I was like, okay, you know, I think that this thing has been there since all the way back in the beginning, you know, my first couple of weeks in med school, and I got to figure out what that is. So um, at that point, I got a career coach, I just was like, how can you can you make me like my career? And, you know, through our work together, which was maybe just six weeks, um, I realized that, you know, I needed to think about doing something else. And then actually, what ended up happening is later that year, uh, that was 2015, my father passed away. And he'd been kind of sick for a while, but we expected him to recover. And when he didn't, uh, you know, I mean, for anyone who's lost someone close to them, you know, it's, it's, it's devastating. And, you know, I, I just felt like, you know, the sunset and it was never going to come up again. And, um, and then shortly after that, I had a serious relationship that I was in that just kind of fell apart. And so uh, since I had already been thinking about making this career shift, I, I just, it's kind of like when you have these catastrophes, these personal catastrophes happen, um, it really puts the microscope on your life. And I just realized that, you know, there are certain things that I could not control, such as, you know, my father dying and parting ways with, you know, significant other, but I could take action on my career. And so it really gave me I, I turned those events into the the impetus or the push to really make a decision about leaving medicine. And I still had no idea what I wanted to do. Of all those interviews, the only thing that sounded interesting to me was um, biotechnology. So uh, what I did is I just made a plan. Um, I made a financial plan uh, to save enough money so that I didn't have to work for a year and I could travel. Because um, I, like I said, I always love traveling. And um, so I did that. I saved for the better part of a year. And then in 2017, I left and I started with two months in Thailand and I just wrote and tried to get rid of my burnout. <laughs> and, um, and, it, and that year, um, that year I went to Thailand, um, Seattle, Portland, which I'd never been to. And I also spent a month in Cuba. Um, and yeah, that year just really gave me some much needed downtime um, that I really hadn't had since I left undergrad. And um, at the end of it, I decided not to go back into practice. And I started consulting for um, a radiology startup that was using, that uses artificial intelligence to basically build the robots that will someday do my job. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so that's kind of how I initially made the transition. And then as I started working with them, I realized that, you know, in order for me to be able to travel, um, I really need to start my own business because that's what's going to give me the flexibility to um, work with how I want, where I want, make, you know, whatever I want it financially and also impact people in a way that's creative that, you know, uses my writing skills. And, you know, it was a bit difficult. It was a bit circuitous the path to evolving conversations, but essentially um, a very great uh, career coach and life coach gave me the permission, so to speak, to just make a business out of what I love doing, which is having deep conversations (laughs) with people. I mean, I can tell you, you know, most of the folks listening to this um, are all in their own career pivot. So you're (laughs) you're speaking to the right audience. Um, I just, you know, really quickly before we jump to a break, um, 
wanted to ask, you know, what that that feeling that you felt was missing in medicine, have you found it in evolving conversations and starting your business? And, and what what was it? Yeah, absolutely. I think what it was was the absence of creativity. Um, you know, for my business, uh, I do a lot of writing. I write on Medium um, and I write about uh, communication and conversation topics, but I write about everything. I write about travel, relationships, um, politics, like I write about uh, technology, biotechnology. Um, and I, I really was missing that creative aspect in medicine. Um, you know, I, when I finally felt like, okay, I've really arrived as a neuroradiologist, I really love that. I really love looking at the brain, but there was just this whole side of me that, you know, had journaled as a kid and who loved, you know, reading these books about Narnia and all that, you know, and I just wasn't engaging any of that. So now in my work, I can really use that curiosity. I can use my creativity and I can also do the kind of like analytical work. You know, I, I, all my, most of my articles are psychology backed. I'm still using all of those skills I uh, learned as a physician in my work. Um, so yeah, no, it's been great. And I think also for me, identifying what my core values were and that freedom is very important to me and having my business be able to provide that, you know, location freedom, um, you know, financial freedom, freedom to create my schedule for my day and my week, you know, all of that has really happened as I've built this business. So yeah, it's been, it's been a great transition. And, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, would I go back to medicine? Um, and, you know, certainly the pathway is still there, but I have no desire. Like I, I really like consulting with the, um, with the AI startup and that's enough for me you know, to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of medicine, but I'm really happy <laughs> being a business owner. So, yeah. Well, and also given what you're doing with the AI startup, you, you know, it, you mentioned this earlier, but you, you know, there might not be a job for you to go back to if you've AI'd it. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing, Francine. We're just going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about evolving conversations. Hi, everyone. Daniel Yellen here. I hope you're enjoying Lauren and Kathleen's conversation with Francine Menz, and I hope you'll stick around for the second half, where Francine is going to provide specific examples from her consulting work on how to improve your everyday conversations. Francine's also been generous enough to provide our listeners with additional resources available at her website, onevolving.com slash nyusternchats. That's O-N-E-V-O-L-V-I-N-G dot com slash NYU Stern Chats. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. Thank you so much, Francine. Um, come back from the break here to learn a little bit more about your company, uh, Evolving Conversations. Um, so you know, first, just right off the bat, I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more about, you know, what is Evolving Conversations? And uh, you talked a little bit about what, you know, led you to start it, but, you know, what what is it? What are, what are we hmm. dealing with here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Evolving Conversations is a platform uh, that I created basically for people who love deep thought and deep conversation. But when they have conversations, they struggle to really make those connections with the people they're talking to. So uh, it is mainly for introverts, but it's also for anybody who wants more connection through 
conversation. Um, so what I mean by that is a lot of times we can get stuck in small talk. So certainly we've all had the experience of going to a networking event and we end up talking about the weather or, you know, train traffic or, you know, just those kinds of things. And, you know, you exchange contact information, but later when you think about the conversation, you don't really remember anything from it and you get the sense that they didn't really remember anything that you said. So, um, you know, when I think of that feeling of meeting someone and really feeling like, you know, there was a spark that you found something that you're both into, like that's the purpose of evolving conversations. Like I create that for people. So <clears throat> I mainly do that by teaching through my courses and through my newsletter. And I do do some one-on-one -on -one, uh, client work as well for people who need more of the nitty gritty on how to do that. Um, so yeah, so I, yeah, I, as I said before, I talk, I started this because I was a really shy person that uh, kind of came out of her shell in college and then really was traveling. Um, I was just forced to have conversations with strangers all the time. And so it's just amazing, you know, when you don't have a travel companion, you have to get really good at uh, being able to talk to anybody. And I think a lot of us think that those people that we see that are so charismatic that they just, you know, either they're extroverts or they just have it, you know, there's just something about charisma that you're born with it. But a lot of times it's actually just habits and techniques that people have learned that they've committed to practicing so that it really becomes automatic to them. And so, you know, the point of evolving conversations is not to change like introverts into extroverts or even to, you know, cure shyness. Like I don't, I don't do that. But I do believe that there are techniques that everybody can learn. And if they commit to practicing them, they can improve the quality of their networking or even just conversations that they have, you know, with their friends and family. Well, it sounds like improving their relationship overall, right? Um, Absolutely. Which especially during this crazy time where we're very virtual, <laughs> developing <laughs> techniques to deepen those uh, relationships through conversation, even virtually so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I just wrote an article um, the other day about the specific problem that I think introverts have where, uh, you know, we can get so caught up in our lives, our responsibilities, but also our inner monologues, our, you know, hobbies, our reading books, social media, Netflix, that we forget to reach out to people. And, you know, the way that I kind of solved that problem for myself as this year has been going on is I, you know, decided that every Thursday at 830, I'm going to call a friend. And if that person doesn't pick up, I call another friend and I just go down the list until somebody picks up. And then by the between the person I talk to and the missed calls, all of a sudden I'm talking to two or three people a week that, you know, I've let months go by and I haven't reached out, you know. So it's it's not just about wanting to call. It's about creating a, a habit that actually gets you to pick up the phone and that you commit to and that you don't have to think about whether you're going to do it. You just do it. Um, so that's that's what I help people with. I love the idea of creating a habit or ritual that will help you get to that space where you feel more comfortable with these conversations. Because I think sometimes it seems like this big idea that I need to connect with 10 different people at companies I'm interested in or something like that. And I like this idea of just breaking it down into small, smaller manageable chunks. And in thinking about 
our audience. It's a lot of current students, um, alumni that are in um, professional spaces. And I'm thinking about connecting in those spaces, whether it's at a networking event, happy hour. If someone is more introverted, they identify as being less extroverted. What are those habits? What are those techniques that they can employ to build up those skills to feel more comfortable in those networking type situations? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And, um, you know, what you said, Kathleen, about, you know, this pressure that we feel when we go to networking events to connect with 10 people. Um, that's a lot for an introvert. Um, you know, I myself will after a few hours, like I feel pretty drained and like I just really feel it. So, you know, what I what I tell people is, you know, having going to an event and making one real connection is better than having 10 connections that are not memorable. So, um, so that's the first thing I tell people is just, you know, lower, and I think that applies to extroverts as well, just really lower, like it's, it's really quality, not quantity. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I help people with is just being approachable. Um, you know, everyone, we go to these networking events and, you know, we go get a drink or water and something to nibble on, and then we get on our phones and, you know, when we think about improving our conversation skills, a lot of times we envision going up to somebody, but also being approachable is half the battle. So, you know, putting your phone away and, and really committing to that, which sounds like pretty simple, but when you're actually at a networking event and you're there by yourself, it's actually kind of nerve wracking. It's so easy to just pull off the phone. So um, I, I, you know, I tell, I help my clients with just, you know, increasing the amount of time that um, they're standing there, you know, essentially twiddling their thumbs and not looking at their phone and making eye contact with people um, <clears throat> because that lets, you know, that lets them know that you're open to conversation. And that doesn't mean staring at people because that can be uncomfortable, but just making eye contact with people, looking for people. And one of the ways to kind of kill the time instead of looking at your phone is um, being observant or getting curious about your environment. So, you know, it doesn't have to be you're looking for somebody, you know, who might be able to get you a position, you know, for the summer. It's just observing what people are wearing, observing what how people are standing, observing what people are, are um, you know, perhaps talking about what they look like or what their lives are like. Because when you get curious, um, when you cultivate that that wondering why and wondering what's going on below the surface, it actually helps you with another aspect of conversation um, that a lot of people struggle with, which is the awkward silence. <laughs> um, so what I also help people with is kind of uh, cultivating that habit of getting curious so that um, when you're, when you have an awkward silence immediately, instead of focusing on maybe how your palms are sweating or oh, how awkward it is and how uncomfortable you feel, you're focused on the other person and you're wondering, you know, why they came to that event or what's going on in their lives that they're, you know, putting aside to come to this event that you're both at, or, you know, how did they get started in, you know, in their career? You know, like I have a really interesting story. Like there's tons of things that, you know, I can talk about, but I, I just, you know, people have to get curious to ask me and to engage. Um, so, yeah. And, and one of the things, you know, for this year, uh, while we're doing a little bit less networking and communicating with people, it's, it's, you can start that habit of getting curious on your own. Like you can get curious about the things in your everyday life. You can get more curious about, you know, the TV shows you watch, you know, like 
how your clothes are made. Like you can get curious about anything. It's just, it's just developing your mindset to examine the complexities behind everyday experiences. Um, yeah. So I, I found that once people, once I help people get into that habit over time, they come up with questions automatically. Um, because, you know, I, I have, you know, conversation starter questions that I send to my uh, community on a regular basis. And that's great. But you're not going to memorize those types of questions and go to a networking event. And I think also just asking better questions. That's another tip I have. Um, you know, uh, a lot of times when we come home from work, we'll ask, you know, our partner or our family member, you know, how is your day? And so one of the things I teach my community is instead of asking, how is your day? You know, ask what the highlight of your of their day was and what the low light of their day was. And in a professional setting, you know, probably just stick to the highlight because um, the low light can be a little personal. Um, but when you ask somebody what the highlight of their day is, it shows you, you know, what's going on in their life, but also what they value, you know, and it doesn't have to be anything major, you know, it doesn't have to be huge. <laughs> like, uh, you know, this morning, my partner ordered breakfast for us and it was really nice because they had an avocado spread and I love avocado. So I got to have that. And that nice. was, <laughs> you know, so, and that's something simple, but you know, it's a nice thing to um, ask somebody because it's a little bit, it requires a little bit more thought than how was your day. And it's, you can't, and the person can't just say fine, or I don't know. It's really hard to, you know, for them to be, give off a closed off response. Um, so I think that's something that can be used in networking situations and it usually starts a conversation goes pretty well. You know, it sounds like um, that not only is, you know, being observant um, and curious a great way to, you know, come up with questions that are authentic and, and really help develop deeper relationships, but they also kind of bring you back to the moment, maybe in the present time, instead of thinking about, you know, what you have to do tomorrow or, you know, looking at your phone or your email. Um, I'm curious to know if, if that also leads to those deeper relationships with people that you already have by being observant. And again, not asking like, how's your day, but let's you know, give me the details um, and any other advice you have on deepening those relationships that we already have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So when you ask, you know, those, uh, your partner or your family member, you know, the highlight and low light, it invites them to tell you a story about their day. Um, and, and that, and then after that, all you really have to do is listen, you know what I mean? So I do think that that actually, it does actually create connection and it, because you actually hear what happened in their day. Um, so yeah, I th I think that that's a really good way to for people to pivot into deeper conversation, and it's been working well for the people who use that tip. Um, in terms of other ways to uh, deepen conversations with existing uh, with existing relationships, um, I think it's the same. It's a similar thing. It's uh, getting curious and then also being vulnerable. Um, you know, when somebody asks you. Uh, you know, what was the highlight and low light of your day? Like, if it's somebody that you already know, you can share a little bit more. Um, you can share, you know, this thing happened and it's made me feel terrible for this reason. Or, you know, just like, I didn't get, you know, the call that I wanted. I really wanted it to happen. I thought it was going to happen. And this is why. And, you know, so just taking that chance to just share a little bit more than you feel comfortable doing 
you know, the other person is not going to see it as weakness, which is what we're all afraid of. And that's why we don't get vulnerable. Um, people see it as courageous. People empathize, actually. And then we feel supported, you know. Um, so it, it does take habit, though. It does take habit. And, and I think that's also really, you know, even for people that you don't know at networking events, you don't have to overshare, but sharing a specific detail of your life, then, you know, maybe that people don't really share at a networking event is, is also a good way to be memorable. It's a, and it encourages that other person to open up, you know? So, yeah, but it, it just, you know, for my one-on-one -on -one clients, sometimes people struggle with that, um, you know, just because of their experiences in their past. And, you know, for instance, like, you know, I'm a shy person, you know, a lot of people have traumatic events that happen in their childhood that make it really difficult for them to feel comfortable opening up to their partners or opening up to their children or, you know, um, significant others. So, you know, sometimes we have to work through that mindset part of it uh, also. Yeah. These are all such great tips. And I'm just thinking about listeners who might want to learn more about these topics like active listening, being curious, being vulnerable. Have there been any resources, whether they're books, podcasts, anything else that you can think of that have really resonated with you that you would encourage listeners to check out as well? Well, I, I love podcasts. Um, I think, you know, in terms of having great things to talk about. Obviously, I would recommend my articles because I'm always writing about all sorts of stuff and always from a psychological perspective. Um, you know, podcasts about what you're interested in um, that you find fascinating are really good. Um, if you're curious about a topic and you've just always wanted to learn about that, um, you know, finding a podcast about it or finding a book to read about it, um, I think is really good. You know, certainly for people who are in, going through a career pivot, um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Bleep by Mark Manson was a really great resource, um, you know, for me. Uh, I, I really encourage anybody who's thinking about, um, you know, who has that little nagging fe feeling that maybe something's wrong, you know, in their current path. Uh, I think reading that book can really give you some uh perspective and then also um any resources about identifying your core values um uh those central tenets of your life uh, when you get really clear on your core values it really helps make uh your decisions easier easier it just you know it gives you a little bit more certainty about uh the paths you're going to take yeah yeah you mentioned your articles, and I assume you're on social media as well, and Evolving yeah. Conversations has a website. How can our listeners find you if they're um, looking to learn more? Sure, yeah. So I um, mainly write on Medium, and you can just search my name at francine.mens. Um, I am also, yeah, I have a website. It's on evolving.com, O-N-E-V-O-L-V-I-N-G.com. And yeah, I actually, I'll give you guys a link. I have um, a quiz I recently developed for the introverts in your audience. Uh, it's called What's Your, Con What's Your Introvert Conversation Style? Um, so people can turn, take that and learn a little bit more about just their conversation styles and, you know, what their strengths are and also, you know, tips for them to improve. Um, and then for everybody, I um, have a email challenge called Ditch the Small Talk. And it's a five-day challenge where every day I, I email you with a tip. Um, so one of the tips we talked about, uh, highlight and low light of your day. 
Um, but I just give a little bit more information about how to implement that and, you know, what the outcome ideally should be. So and I'll, I'll give you guys a link um, for everybody who's listening. But yeah, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook at Evolving Conversations. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Francine, thank you so much for your time today. This has been so wonderful to hear more about your life journey and story, as well as your practical tips for improving communication skills. Thank you so much, Kathleen and Lauren. It was great talking with you. And I hope everybody loved this conversation because I really did. Thanks, Francine. Thanks.